The role of the modern day pastor and ministry leader is changing. More and more pastors around the world today are ministry leaders who are doing multiple jobs and wearing multiple hats. They are bivocational or co-vocational leaders. They may be pastors looking for creative ways to use their church or staff to create income and revenue for sustainability. They may be ministry leaders who are looking for ways to launch for-profit initiatives or integrate innovation into their organization. They may be those who want to do missions globally and find creative ways to create sustainability. Or they may be marketplace leaders who are called to stay in the marketplace, but want to be part-time pastors, lay pastors, start ministries or nonprofits. This is the age of a new ministry leader. They wear different hats and do different things. They are technologically savvy and global. They are who God is using to make an impact in cities and communities around the world. This is the Entrepreneurial Ministry Leader Podcast, and these are their stories. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I am here to talk with authors Marcus Warner as well as Jim Wilder on their newest book, Rare Leadership in the Workplace, Four Common Uncommon Habits to Improve Focus, Engagement, and Productivity. And I would say both Marcus as well as Jim, uh, Moody Publishers, my good friend, I used to work at Moody Bible Institute with the President's Office for a number of years, and they were nice enough to still send me their newest releases every single month. And when I got this, the books, I noticed your book. I said, wow, this is a very interesting book just because I do a lot of work with young marketplace leaders in different global cities. So as a result, guys, thank you so much for finding time to really be able to jump on and talk today. Yeah, it's exciting to be with you today, Tommy. Yeah. Delighted. Jim, speaking of that, I'm going to start off with you a little bit. Share a little bit of what you do for a living. I know you live in Denver, Colorado. What do you do for a living here, Jim? Well, I uh, build myself as a neurotheologian, and uh, that's somebody who works right at the intersection of brain science and theology. What the Bible and science agree on is usually worth paying attention to, and uh, so that's that's basically what I try to do. We've been uh, developing something called the life model, which is how do you grow up? to be the person that God intended you to be at every age along the, the lifespan. So uh, we try to take a very um, cross-cultural point of view so that it applies to um, um, all God's creatures. Very good. Jim, I mean, as soon as I'm talking with you, we're going to have to have a separate conversation on what this life model is. But Marcus, you were telling me right before we started recording here that you, uh, Jim was one of your guest speakers when you took on this, your ministry, Deeper Walk International, and you started eating up everything that Jim was teaching. Share, share with me a little bit of what you do, but also how you and Jim connected. Well, I'm the uh, president of Deeper Walk International, and we help people identify and overcome the obstacles to a deeper walk with God. And we find a lot of times that obstacle has to do with our, our emotional life, uh, the baggage and bondage that we carry with us, and how do you experience breakthrough. So when I uh, got to know Jim, um, his uh, brain science research was brand new to me. I All my study was in Old Testament and in biblical studies, and the brain science was a new thing. So I would listen to his material like a, a couple lines at a time, stop it, take notes, make sure I understood, listen to it again, stop it and take notes. And realize that okay, he's on to something here that is really important. And then we were uh, uh, blessed to become friends, get to know each other outside of that context, and be able to have conversations about these things. 
And uh, at one point I approached him and said, hey, I think that you're onto something here that if we could get it in front of leaders could really be transformative. And uh, he agreed to, uh, to do this book and to take the life model that he's developed and apply it to uh, the leadership context. And that's what we've tried to do in this book. Yeah, wonderful. I, I love to really be able to take a look. You start off, and Jim, I'm going to start off with you. You start off with this book, with this whole concept of sandbox leadership. Talk to me a little bit about what that means. Well, we probably all encouraged um, ourselves to go back to work after dealing with some particularly immature leadership uh, situation. Um, I know that just about every job I've worked at, there have been those moments when we've watched a leader who's supposed to be helping us get through a problem melt down instead and make it all of our problems and, and make it hard to do our jobs. And so sandbox leadership um, um, is that kind of, you know, that when the sandbox were having the tantrum, uh, you know, throwing sand and yelling and screaming instead of actually helping people achieve what we're here together to do. And then, uh, you know, afterwards, we all, you know, if we watched it happen, we kind of talk about it privately, but we don't know how to bring it up to the leader. And if we did it ourselves, we hope everyone forgets it. So how do you get past that? What What is it that makes you actually want to follow somebody, to engage with them, to say, hey, if I got a problem, this is the person I want to have around. And so, um, you know, the book was working with that idea. How do we actually become the kind of leaders that people want to come to when there's a problem because they know it'll be better by talking to us. Marcus, did you guys in the midst of all, even looking at this whole concept of sandbox leadership, did you guys look and talk with different companies, organizations, or leaders is to really be able to see examples of that being seen in the workplace? You know, interestingly, not initially. Initially, this was taking just what we had seen work in counseling with people and in groups and uh, the science that we had seen work there, we had took it to the corporations almost as a, uh, a trial and yeah. to see how it would work. And the re response we got was uh, was amazing. I know there's one company they they have become a rare company. Like they they're all in on uh, making sure that every week they send out an email about what it looks like to be to build a rare culture. What is it like to apply these principles on a weekly basis? And so the the reaction has been really kind of extraordinary because, you know, we all face these sandbox leaders that don't play well together. Yeah. And when you're in a group that doesn't play well together, uh, you know, everything gets harder and we become less productive. We become less focused. We're more focused on the internal problems and politics of the company. And we aren't as able to really focus on what needs to be done to, uh, to accomplish what we're all trying to do. Jim, do you find that there are certain personalities a leader has that gets them stuck in sandbox leadership? Are there certain qualities that really are evident in what you're studying in terms of the, uh, the personality of that leader, the type of leader that gets stuck? Uh, yeah, the main characteristic we have is that uh, pretty much all of their relationships are a little bit fear-based. So uh, they get where they get by sort of intimidating other people into getting out of their way, yeah. which can really, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a bit predatory. And uh, almost every culture has its predatory heroes. Yeah. In fact, you know, uh, weakness is usually something that they don't talk about very well. And in most times, we don't want to pick a, a leader who admits any weaknesses. 
So culture kind of pushes people to be stronger than they actually are as well. Um, from a biblical perspective, you will notice that all of God's enemies pretty much were giants and monsters. They tried to be bigger than they actually were. And most of God's heroes are actually people who look kind of small yeah. at first when you're when you're looking at them. So that it's that desire to be a little bit bigger than life-size uh, um friend of mine, uh, Thomas Gerlach from Germany, was studying the, the Nazi business over there that was in his ancestry. And he said, you know, they all want to be supermen, uh, want to be bigger than and better than the rest, stronger than the rest. And it really made people quite dangerous. Um, and, you know, you can get a long ways in the world. But is it really what we want in terms of leadership? You know, people don't want to follow you so much as they're afraid of getting in your way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Marcus, you guys end up, and this really takes a good chunk of the book, this whole idea of the rare model of leadership. You were just talking about that. Talk to me about what that what that means. So rare is an acrostic, right? It represents the four core characteristics of uh, mature leadership. So we define maturity as enduring hardship well. So that's the E of rare. And the idea is, well, what does it look like to endure hardship well? And the first three give you the answer to that. You remain relational when things are going wrong. You act like yourself when things are going wrong. Mm -hmm. And you return to joy and you help everybody around you return to joy when things are going wrong. And that's what it looks like to endure hardship well. So the idea here is that some people are stuck at infant level maturity. And that means that the only thing they do when things go wrong is throw a tantrum, get upset, yeah. you know, make you know, let everybody know that they're upset. They're like, like babies are really good at letting you know they're upset, but they aren't real good at telling you what to do, uh, giving you direction, you know, calming everybody down. Same way at the child level, uh, people are really good at making sure they get taken care of, but they're not so good at making sure that everybody gets taken. Mm. And so child level maturity leaders are really good at organizing everything to make sure that their needs are met. Yeah. They don't necessarily take care of everybody else. So we're, we're looking at what does it mean to be an adult in the way that we lead? And then let's go even past that. What does parent level and elder level leadership look like? Interesting. And those are real stretchers for a lot of people who've never even considered what adult level leadership looks like, let alone uh, going to the levels beyond that. So that's what the life model is in a nutshell, right? It's, it's, it's that infant, child, adult, parent, elder level of maturity, what it looks like to be fully mature at that age group. And then what we're doing is taking and saying, well, as what happens when you have a leader who's stuck at a different level? What happens when you have a leader who's stuck at child level? And how do we help them get to this adult level where they are remaining relational, acting like themselves, and uh, returning to joy and helping other people return to joy so that they endure hardship well? Okay, so let me ask you a follow-up question, Marcus. Now go over to Jim. What happens with the leader who doesn't realize he's stuck at that level? Like, it's the person who thinks that he's a great preacher and everyone knows he's a terrible preacher and everyone kind of gives hints to that person, but they they will never admit it. How do you deal with the person who doesn't admit it? So it, it, it kind of depends on how good that person is at dealing with shame, right? And that is if that person can handle shame, then it's a pretty easy conversation. And as you talk to them directly and you say, hey, you're really good at this and this, but we need to work on that. And if they are humble enough to be able to have that conversation and not feel threatened by it, you, you've got to win. Where most of us run into problems is that we're dealing with people who don't handle shame well. Yeah. Because they don't handle shame well, it's like everybody around them sort of makes an agreement. We're not going to push that button. We're not going to touch that topic. We're going to leave it alone. 
Uh, Jim actually wrote a book about this called Pandora Problem. The idea is we don't want to lift the lid on Pandora's box, so let's just not touch it. Got it. We're talking with Marcus Warner and Jim Wilder on their book, Rare Leadership. Hey, Jim, let me ask you, return to joy. Why is joy so important? Well, first of all, all we have to say what joy is, as far as your brain is concerned, joy means we're actually glad to be together. And so it's a very relational con uh, concept. So um, if you end up, you know, offending somebody, you know, you're not glad to see them. You don't want to see them when they show up. You, you know, there's a problem between the two of you. And all of us know how miserable that is at home, at work, every kind mm -hmm. of context at church to be a, have somebody that we just don't want to see. So it's extremely stressful. It's one of the hardest things to put up with. Uh, as far as a human being is concerned, it's like if, if I have to be around people I don't like to be with, this is going to be bad. Uh, so returning to joy means how do we get back to being glad to be together? You put it in that context, you can start to see why it's pretty important. And um, as one of um, our friends, uh, Dr. Carl Lehman said, uh, you know, taking something from calculus, what wears you out is the energy uh, uh, under the curve. Um, the amount of time it takes you to get back to joy is a bit like how long it takes to uh, swim back to shore. The farther it is, the longer it takes, the harder, more exhausted you're going to be uh, when you get back. So learning to get back quickly you know, not letting the sun go down on your wrath kind of an idea. Uh, resolving things quickly really reduces our stress. And it also reduces the amount of resistance we have next time we have to work something out. So if I know if I'm going to talk to Marcus, uh, you know, we're trying to work out a chapter on the book. And um, I'm going to compare him with a, another author I worked with. With that other author, I knew it was going to be weeks of just hashing it back and mm -hmm. forth to try to work something out. And it was going to be like, oh, man, I, do I even want to work on this project? You know, do I want to change that sentence? With Marcus, uh, I don't run into that kind of resistance at all. I go to talk to him and he goes, huh, what are you talking about? And if I can explain myself, he goes, ah, okay, well, how about this? And uh, so we, you know, telling him we've got a problem with the book turns into a solution extremely quickly. Um, you know, it's just fun. You know, it just makes you want to take the next problem and run and talk with him about it. Got it. Jim, let me ask you then a follow-up question with that one then. How does a leader return to joy? How do you help a leader who's negative by nature at times, sees problems all the time, how do you help them learn to be joyful? Well, uh, I think there are uh, basically two sides to that. One is you have to have some emotional skills, some emotional maturity skills. And one of the things that we did with this uh, Rare Leadership book is that it's actually a, a follow-up on a, a Christian version of the Rare Leadership book. And in the Christian version, and, and this one about 3% uh, text in common, so it, it's they're very different. But in the Christian book, we, we had resources of if we can see people the way that God sees them, it gives us the inspiration to say, you know what, this person just isn't living up to their uh, God-given nature, and we're going to help them back to that. That's uh, that's having this bigger picture of who people could be. Um, 
And every culture has some degree of that, even within their culture, because usually you can say you're you're not even living up to what our culture expects you to be, let alone what God expects you to be. So there's that side of it. But the other side is having the personal relational skills to say with the six emotions that happen, they're hardwired in your brain, can I still get back to joy if we're both sad? And most people can't. Uh, can we do it if we're afraid? Well, if I'm not afraid of you, probably. Uh, can I do it if I'm disgusted? Well, again, usually if I'm not disgusted with you, I can, we can work something out. We've got a mess here. And, uh, but then we get the shame and anger and hopelessness. Those feelings are much harder to handle. And if I don't know how to stay, use all of these relationships to make all these emotions to make my relationships better, then when that particular emotion comes up, I'll melt down. Mm. And it's like, well, you don't want to make me mad. I've heard a lot of people say that, right? Why don't we want to make you mad? Because when I get mad, I stop being the person I usually am. I forget who I am. I lose all my maturity skills. Uh, and I start acting like that sandbox person. So you could really pretty much lay it out to those six things. If you're going to have a problem with returning to joy, you can name which emotion of the six you're going to have trouble with. And if you have the humility to go and ask somebody who handles it well, for instance, uh, you know, if Marcus handles shame well, well, let's go and ask him, hey, what would you do with this? You know, sort of that mentoring relationship. Um, and by talking to somebody who's got the skill, we learn it from them. Perfect, perfect. Hey, uh, Marcus, let me ask you a quick question is, I think I understand remain relational and during hardship. How about acting like yourself? Can you talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, well, that builds directly off of what Jim was just saying, because when we don't act like ourselves, it's usually because one of these big six negative emotions has triggered us. And uh, as a result of that, when I'm feeling shame, I might turn into a different person. Yeah. When I'm feeling anger, I turn into a different, different right. person. So when you work for a leader, who is constantly getting triggered by various emotions and turning into somebody else. You walk yes. on seashells around that leader because you're never sure who you're going to get. Yeah. So that the definition of maturity and to a large extent is that ability to act like yourself and not turn into another person, no matter what emotions are in front of you. Got it. Got it. Now, I also know that a lot of times you work with churches and you've done work with different ministries, everything like that. Do you see a difference between how ministry leaders and pastors handle these leadership compared to those in the corporate space? Uh, we wish, but uh, <laughs> too often they're way too overlapping because uh, honestly, um, people tend to get promoted for results, yeah, not for maturity. And that happens in the Christian world and in the corporate world. And so what happens when you promote people based on, on the fact that they get results, like they can grow a church, they can grow a youth group, yeah. they can get more numbers, they can raise more money. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're more mature people. And so you can begin collecting people who aren't actually very good at working with other people. They're not very, uh, they don't play well with others. But uh, when you leave them on their own, they can get results, but they put them in that, that wrong setting and they burn everybody out. They create yeah. a toxic environment. Nobody wants to work there. And sadly, you see that just as often in churches as you do in the corporate world. Or Marcus, a lot of times what I've seen is a lot of times someone has done such a great job in their current role. You, like what you said, you move them up, but they were really good at that role. That doesn't mean they're very good at the role that you just were promoting them to. 
and, and that goes a lot with capacity, right? In other words, they were well within their capacity. The skills and habits that they had developed could handle what they were doing, but there was a whole other set of skills and habits they hadn't yet developed that are related to this new task. And so we we need to make sure that those the, those habits are a match with the new yeah. tasks that they're going into. Hey, Jim, now let me ask you a quick question is generations. Now you have baby boomer, you have Gen X, you have Gen Z and Gen, uh, all of that, millennials. Do you see a difference in qualities, rare, this whole idea of rare leadership in different generations and how it's manifested? Or it's pretty much the same across all generations? Well, in one way, the question is unfair. Um, and not to accuse you of being unfair, but uh, as maturity develops across a lifespan, yeah. the older you are, the more chances you've actually had to Got develop some maturity skills. So uh, we wouldn't be too surprised to find that the younger generations, for instance, are going to be working, trying to be adults. Uh, that's a whole new job for them. Uh, and parenting is a little bit beyond their headlights. The, the uh, Gen Xers are, you know, more likely to be uh, learning the parenting skills. And uh, so the older you get, the more chances you have. But uh, there is something that we found uh, globally. I was talking uh, to the Christian College Associations of Southeast Asia. Mm. Um, and uh, in Korea, for instance, which is one of the highest uh, uh, places of media use, most time in front of screens, they're finding Alzheimer-like symptoms in teenagers because... Uh, their brains have not really had the practice engaging with other people under duress. They're, they play with screens, and screens don't don't train you in some of these relational things. If you uh, you know you blow your video game, uh, you know it's not important to work things out with the characters yeah, yeah. afterwards. So we've got this younger generation who has got two problems: one, way too much screen time which doesn't help you handle emotions with people. And the second uh, thing they have is up until the internet generation quite recently, you knew exactly who your people were and you were being socialized by yep. an identity group. Uh, now the colleges are saying the kids are coming in to college, their identity group is virtual. It's yes. In any place in the world. Uh, and that group is not too interested in socializing you into a culture. And so now we've got this double uh, problem, let's say, going on that's becoming quite a, a concern that's never been present in the world before. Yeah. So, uh, and at least in the, in the West, um, we've generated uh, all different environments for each generation. So it's very rare that you would see somebody a, ge a generation or two older than you really spend much time with them. So the kind of relational maturity skills that got passed down, uh, like during my grandfather's uh, era, most people couldn't work past age 40. They were disabled at some point. So mm. most of the adults 40 and older were at home with the kids and grandkids. And you actually had this interaction going on in every home across um really part of the world between older and younger people and the older people were paying particular attention to the social skills of the younger ones. Now that can be oppressive, but on the other hand, it's, it's something that we currently are missing and we're trying to figure out how to do it. 
Yeah, I, I realize, and both of you guys are Caucasian individuals. I'm Asian by nature. My parents are immigrated here in 72. I find that Chinese individuals are Asian by nature. We're always pushed to excel and get straight A's, to get perfect SATs. But the social skills, the interaction with others, the ability to work with others is not emphasized. My parents emphasized that we had to get straight A's on report cards so much that my history teacher at high school says to my mom, if you, those boys don't learn how to interact me and my twin brother, they will not be successful in their jobs. But that for them, it was just never something that they wanted us to learn. And I find that when working with some Asians, they're very smart. They're brilliant, but they don't know how to engage with other people. And so they make actually pretty bad leaders as well, too. Marcus, let me ask you a quick question is, during this research and writing of the book, were there things that surprised you in the midst of that? You said, wow, that's a different thing that I never even thought about prior before writing this book. Well, honestly, there are quite a few, and uh, you could kind of walk through. That's one of the things that makes the books fun to write, is that you're writing about things that you are discovering as you go. So most of the chapters have something in there that was like, oh, wow, that's a really unique way to look at it. Um, one, just related to what you were just talking about, one of the things that's interesting is that every human has the same brain setup, right? Whether you're from China or India or mm. Middle East or you know, Latin America, Caucasian, we, we all are operating with the same kind of a brain. And so one of the aha moments here is that all of this stuff is, is uniformly cross-cultural, right? And that is, so when you ask about, you know, Gen Z and all the rest of it, the idea is that, well, we've all got the same brain. All of those brains need to develop. They need to get stronger. And uh, so one of the things that was helpful to me, I think the aha, one of the ahas for me was the, the role of the leader in prioritizing culture over results, because uh, I, I was I was always raised with you know you got to hit your numbers, you got to get your sales, you got to get the uh, to the next goal, you got to hit you know results is the bottom line of what makes you successful. If you're a coach, you got to get wins. And what I realized is that those are actually kind of like side benefits of doing the the core thing well. And that is that if you focus on results and you make that your core thing, you're always going to end up with a toxic culture. It's always going to be fear-based. But if you focus on the culture and the health of the culture, the results tend to come with it. And so what was, I think, the biggest aha moment for me going through here was this idea that the target of leadership, the proper target is, how do I build the kind of culture where everybody loves to come to work? They love to be a part mm -hmm. of it. They get energized by the problem solving. They get energized by interacting with each other about how they're going to make this all better. Um, and in contrast, I talked to a consultant at a Fortune 5 company uh, who told me, uh, he goes, man, this, this company is in bad shape because it's a completely fear-based culture. And yeah. don't take the blame for anything. They're constantly passing on shoddy work, making sure they're not the ones who take the fall. And, uh, and it's a it's a setup for failure. And so this is why we uh, we focus on that so much. Got it. All right. Let me ask you a couple of questions because we're running out of time here. Jim, let me when you encounter leaders that struggle with that and continue to bring fear within the company, is there hope to train that leader? Is there hope to continue to develop that leader? Or there are certain times when you just got to throw in the towel and let them go and fire them. Where is that point, Jim, in your opinion? Well, um, yeah, leadership is, uh, as even scripture says, if you're a teacher, you're, you're going to be judged by a higher standard. 
So if you do step up and say, I'm going to be responsible for the lives of all these people and the outcome of this company, and you're not you're not doing it within the time frame that life in, insists on, uh, you know, you just can't leave somebody there and let everybody drown. That doesn't mean you throw the, the person and their value away. You just say, um, well, let me just back up a second and say, when I worked at the counseling center, I always got the job of firing everyone. And most people who I fired said it was their best day at work. Um, because what I did is I explained to them how they were not suited for the job they were doing and helped them find the place where they needed to fit in in, in life. Uh, I think one of the problems in the world that I think the devil has got to be behind is making sure everybody's in the job that isn't good for them. And you got to work hard and hate every moment of it. So if you find somebody in leadership, um, everybody has a chance to mature. But I like what one church did recently. They had taken some very young, a young couple, and uh, they put them in as elders. Well, from a maturity point of view, they weren't anywhere near ready to be elders, and they were getting some burnout. So the church decided they were going to fire them, essentially, and give them a year off, paid, to go and heal and help them develop their maturity. And hopefully that uh, coming back in another 20 years, they would be ready for the position that they'd been put in prematurely. So is firing the end of things? No. Sometimes you have to take people and uh, move them into a better position. But I think we want to have that mindset. Don't be afraid of getting fired. Uh, you know, find the place where you're actually ready to be and grow there. And in time, you will reach the place you'd want to be. Very, very good. Marcus, can I ask you, uh, not to put you on the spot, but I'm going to ask you a hard question, is when we start looking at some of these ministry leaders, many, especially in bigger churches, are struggling and failing because of character flaws, uh, their downfalls, sins, whatever it is. What's contributing to that? If you were to bring in a consultant with some of the bigger churches who are struggling with their pastors falling, what would you say to them? Well, there's a couple of things I would say up front. First of all, is that we have a, a problem both with the church and with the leadership. And that is that the uh, we've embraced something we call a kingmaker model. And that is we say to the pastor, you're smarter than me. You're more talented than me. You get better results than me. You're more anointed than me. So we're just going to ask you to do everything. We're going to sit back and applaud you and cheer you. And we're going to make you the, the king, so to speak. And what happens is kings have no peers. And mm -hmm. so they're all alone. They are. They have no no community. They have no no culture that is uh, helping them grow. As a result, the king is not allowed to have weaknesses, and so the king learns to hide all of his weaknesses or justify his weaknesses. And so, underneath this kingmaker model is a ramp. It, it, it tends to promote people with narcissistic tendencies and traits into that position. And so, one study that uh, Jim came across suggested that pastors are actually 3,000 times more likely to be narcissists than the average population. And I think it's because churches have put this out there and they've recruited to this and they kind of created this, this paradigm that encourages the problem. Um, so that's that I've, I've rarely found somebody with a, a huge character flaw who wasn't either um, uh, simply way beyond their maturity capacity to handle what they were being asked to do or was uh, had some narcissistic qualities they hadn't gotten a whole handle on. 
Okay, so Marcus, Jim, as soon as you just said that, both of you guys, Marcus, you graduated from Trinity. Jim, you were at Fuller. Does that mean a lot of times seminaries have to do things a little bit differently than how they're training their pastors in leadership? And I say this because rarely in seminary do you teach a lot of leadership skills. And when you do, you're telling the pastor they're the lead shepherd. They're the guys in charge. And your sheep probably doesn't know any better. So that also contributes to this whole idea of the kingship problem. I think we got a double problem right there. One is uh, we, as uh, schools, uh, tend to disqualify anybody who we think is not going to graduate and, and look good. Uh, so there's a tendency to, uh, if you show a weakness, you're going to get screened out of here. That certainly was part of the, the atmosphere that, that I encountered in, in school. But the other side is, let's say... Uh, what you really need in order to be a good leader is maturity and relational skills. Is there anything in the curriculum that is actually developing that? Um, and, uh, you know, when I talk to people about, was there any real change moment for you in seminary or graduate school? It's almost always a professor that took a personal interest in them. While there was this one professor who was very relational with me, that actually changed my entire experience. But the, the, the uh, academic environment is not set up to uh, recruit, enhance, and um, remedy a lack of relational skills. And if that's what you're going to need when you actually get out uh, and you want to create a group identity and you want to have good relationships, then we're not equipping people well. No, it's a huge issue. My father was actually the director of the doctoral programs at Trinity. He was the head of the doctor of ministry and missiology programs. And uh, he did a survey there one time to ask, do you see your job as discipling the students or, or teaching your discipline? And within the Bible and theology department, 100% of them said teaching my discipline. Right. So you've got an issue right here where we're um, we send people to seminary to get ready for ministry. And what we essentially do is train them to argue well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I can argue with anybody, right? If you want to debate theology, let's go. You know, I, I'm ready because that's what the uh, seminary prepares you to do. What it didn't prepare me to do was be a more loving person. It didn't do uh, anything to help me with the, the baggage issues in my life that had me stuck with areas that of uh, 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 spiritual bondage that I didn't know how to control where I would. So I just hid them. It didn't do anything to help me become a more relational person. You know, it didn't do anything to help me build my maturity. So you look at what a huge hole that is, and it, it, it seemed like we should be sending our pastors to places where they can learn relational skills and uh, emotional uh, wholeness um, every bit as much as what the, we're learning on the other side of it. Yeah, fascinating discussion. Guys, I mean, thank you very much. Rare leadership in the workplace, four uncommon habits to improve focus, engagement, and productivity. I, I, I just found this conversation fascinating because having worked 10 years in the corporate world in the telecom industry, then from that point on being a pastor and then going to seminary and then working actually at Moody Bible Institute, I saw that leadership displayed good and bad in different contexts. And I would probably say now even working with Resource Global and even the seminary and the growth center, one of the things is we need to train pastors in the area of leadership. And I think this is a phenomenal book that will help people do that, especially whether it's pastors or also lay leaders as well, too. So, guys, thank you so much on a Friday afternoon for jumping on and talking with me. So, Marcus in Indianapolis and Jim Wilder over in uh, Colorado, thank you. 
It's been a pleasure, Tommy. Nice to uh, chat with you today. Yep. Hey, last thing for you guys, Marcus, if people want to follow you or uh, look you up, where can they find you at? Uh, DeeperWalkInternational.org. We also have a YouTube channel, Deeper Walk International. Got it. Jim, where can they find you at? LifeModelWorks.org. Very good. I'm going to have to schedule both separate conversations with you to talk about your ministries and everything that you're doing. So thank you so much, everyone. Great being with you. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Grow Center's Entrepreneurial Ministry Leader Podcast. To stay connected, make sure you subscribe to the Grow Center channel, rate and review this episode, and make sure to share on your social media platforms. We would love for you to follow along with the Grow Center on Instagram and Facebook at Grow Center Network and our website at www.thegrowcenter.com. See you next time.